Ugly is beautiful. Disaster is beautiful. Tragedy is beautiful. You can sit back for a little while as I share with you one of my favorite stories of uh, my time in ministry uh, that probably could go on for uh, 45 minutes, but I'll try to keep it shorter. Um, in the early 20, uh, 2000, uh, 2000s, uh, as a youth pastor, I joined along with uh, a number of other youth pastors from around North and South Dakota at the time. Uh, I was in Grand Forks. Uh, ben Payne was the youth pastor here, and so he and I and about five other youth pastors and youth leaders from some smaller towns, we got together and we organized a rather large mission trip to Mexico. So there were over a hundred students that were going, and about 25 leaders and uh, this huge undertaking. And so we found an organization that we thought could handle us uh, and use them. And we kind of knew right off the bat that this wasn't going to go as smoothly as we had hoped it would, but we were still going through with it. The very first sign was that we had to get all of the students that were going together for a day, for a day of orientation. We had to pay the money to fly in uh, some of their staff to come and give us an orientation. And they arrived with boxes of these tiny little duffel bags that would be our luggage that everybody was only allowed to bring uh, this big. Uh, and um, as students were checking them out and seeing how much they could fit in, the zippers just started to pop. And, uh, and, and he's like, that's okay, just don't fill it so tightly. As you can imagine, when we showed up at the airport to leave, uh, how many duct tape duffel bags there were uh, and socks falling out, you know, kind of uh, out on the tarmac. Uh, we arrived in, uh, just on the, in the, on the border of Texas and Mexico on a Sunday afternoon and we got there and uh, our fearless leader met us and he said, I need about a dozen youth leaders to come with me. We have to go get the rental vans to come back and pick up the students. And so we went and we arrived at the, at the rental office only to find out that that company is not open on Sundays. And so uh, about three hours later, a lot of phone calls and some pleading, we were able to get our vehicles to go and pick up the students. And we were running late, so we, uh, we needed to get uh, to our mission site. And so we had to get through border crossing with all of these kids. And then we got to our mission site that was really just kind of a, a, a chain link fenced uh, area out in the middle of what seemed to be the desert, which we knew was going to happen. But time was of the essence. We Before the sun went down, we needed to get our tents set up. And so the tents were in a closet. And so everybody goes to the closet to get out the tents. But the group that was there before us uh, had not done such a great job of organization. So on one side of the closet are all of the, the tents of different shapes and sizes and brands and colors. And on the other side of the closet, all of the poles of these tents. So... For the next, I don't know how long it took, it seemed like forever, people were trying to figure it all out. Most just kind of gave in and just tied their tents to trees and branches and each other. And some guys just decided they weren't even going to set up, they are just going to climb in like a sleeping bag at night. And a group of us, four youth pastors, we went off to a corner and tied up to this chain link fence to keep ours up. Uh, the downside was that right outside on the other side of the fence were a couple of goats that were tied to that fence that were decided that they didn't want to let us sleep at night. 
which we weren't sleeping anyway because that first night when we put our air mattresses down on that rocky ground, those rocks went right through our air mattresses anyway. And so there we were laying on the hard ground with goats laughing at us all throughout the night. Everybody was having a pretty miserable sleep. No big deal. We were on a mission trip. It was going to be great. And I will tell you that our time of serving in orphanages and in the streets and working around the area was absolutely amazing. God did some pretty incredible things. But from the leader's perspective, the ones that were in charge, we were in charge of the details, uh, it was just one episode after the next. We got into it with the organization that we were leading as uh, just a lot of theological issues, and we need to correct some things. And God was moving, the Spirit was moving in uh, some nights during prayer, and they just decided to just interrupt it because they had games scheduled for that night that needed to take place. And so it just became a blow-up all of the time. As we neared the end of the trip, one of the things that the, the miserable nights and the heat and the sweat, so one thing that the, that the students kept their eyes on is that on the last day, there was going to kind of be this celebration. We go back over the border, we go to South Padre Island, they can hang out at the beach for a little while, and they had been told, bring a nice outfit, because we're going to go to some, a nice restaurant on the beach. And so uh, the end of the trip comes, and we cross over the border, and we spend the day at the beach, and the kids get all get dressed up to get in the vans for our leader to take us to the elegant uh, Golden Corral. And so uh, the kids were angry, they were furious, they uh, gorged themselves on all of this food. Uh, we got back to our camp that night, and everybody kind of decided to go to bed, and it was really short-lived uh, because the Golden Corral... Uh, had poisoned most of our group. And so I can say that they're not, they're, there's no Golden Corral in Bismarck now, so I can talk about that. Sound. But um, now one thing I didn't mention is that uh, one of the downsides that kind of people got crabby about is that uh, for over 100 of us in this campsite, there was only one outhouse for the girls and one outhouse for the boys that held one person at a time. Uh, and so that night in the middle of the night, uh, the outhouse was everywhere. Whatever, anywhere you could find a bush or behind a brick wall or behind your tent, if it was still standing, uh, kids were absolutely miserable. That next morning, as we, the rest of us kind of climbed out, we you know, tried to help people out. and We need to get to the airport, but they were going to serve us breakfast. And um, it just so happened, it was maybe the only justice for the week, is that uh, during breakfast, those that everybody sitting there, we had to try to get water and some food into kids. They're like, we can't, we're so sick. And the, the man who owned the goats decided that would be a good time to untie them and walk them over and throw them over a tree and slaughter them in front of all of our kids who were already sick. So you can imagine how much more everyone, girls are crying, people are screaming. Some of the guys are running over to help out. Uh, and... Uh, so we get in the vans and we travel to the airport. It's time to go home, uh, only to find out that our airport, our airplane uh, is still in Minneapolis. It's three hours behind. Uh, and so we knew that, that we needed to try to get in touch with our bar bus drivers because we weren't spending the night in Minneapolis. We were taking charter buses to get us back home that night. Uh, and we didn't want them to, to leave. And so we were trying to get in touch with them. We couldn't. We got on the plane. Finally, we get in the air and we're just, just get us to Minneapolis. We just want to get on the ground until the pilot came on and said, ladies and gentlemen, there are tornadoes on the ground in the Minneapolis area. And I don't know if you know this, but when there are tornadoes in the ground, they are also in the air. And so our airplane was rising and falling at drastic rates. So you can imagine the air sick bags were already all used up 
from our poisoned children. Uh, and, and so the rest of us were all becoming airsick in the middle of, and people were screaming and crying. And then they were yelling at each other for screaming and scaring one another and all of the other passengers until they finally decided to reroute us to Omaha, Nebraska. Uh, now, one of the things that the, this in, incredible airline did for us while we were waiting in Texas, and this was before cell phones, so they gave, gave each of us a coupon book that contained a 20-minute phone card, uh, as well as one free alcoholic beverage on the flight. So we collected all those from the students and threw those away. We left them, not very wise, but we left them with the, with the, with the phone cards. You can imagine when we landed in Omaha that the students ran for the phones and began calling home to tell about their parents about how they almost died. And they're crying and they're screaming and we, can't, we haven't yet gone to the phones yet because we're trying to gather our thoughts because we know that as leaders, once we get to Minneapolis, it's going to be way too late to head home. We're going to need a hotel. So we start making phone calls and we find a hotel that can hold all the girls, another hotel across town that can hold all the guys. We think we have it all organized. And then I uh, have somebody come rush and get me and said, we just called 911 uh, because one of my students uh, was diabetic and thought that because the flight would be so short that day that she could keep her uh, medications in her suitcase that are now under the plane and she's going into all sorts of issues that so we have to call the fire department and the police department and ambulance that have to come that again then holds up our plane. We finally get on uh, the, uh, the airplane and to Minneapolis uh, and we trek all the way through to get to the, the bus stop only to do a number count and we're missing someone. <laughs> One person's missing. So about an hour later, we finally found him. He had to stop and go to use the restroom uh, while we were all trying to get to the buses and he lost us. And so we finally get on the buses and we tell the bus driver, here's the deal. Change of plans. We're not going home. We need to spend the night in these hotels. And the driver says, well, I can't. I have a casino run back in Bismarck. But early tomorrow afternoon, and so we're going to have to get home. So we called the hotel to tell them that we're not going to come, and they said, we're sorry, but it's past midnight, and you've already paid the bill. And so we decide, well, you know what? We, fine, we'll, we'll stay for a few hours, we'll pack everybody up, and we'll come home. So we get the girls to their hotel, we get the guys all situated in rooms, and there's about five of us left that don't have a room. And uh, we just kind of look at each other, like, well, we could just sleep out here in the lobby. Uh, and I went up to the guy at the desk, and I just said, man, do you have any more rooms? And he said, you know, I, have, I just have one. At, I have the honeymoon suite. It, and it's, it's a theme suite if you're interested. I said, I don't care what it is. We'll take it. And so we get it, and we get our key, and we get to the door. And I kid you not, I put it in, and I open the door. And it's a theme, and it says, welcome to Mexico. From, from our perspective as those that were supposedly in charge of that trip, I could, there are so many other stories. Uh, it was an absolute disaster. Uh, there was so much frustration, uh, so much anger at times, so many things that went wrong. Um, but in the last 20-some years since we've done that trip, I have run into so many of those young people that were on that trip. Uh, that said, that trip changed my life. Uh, I fell in love with missions. On it. We have missionaries that are on the field this, uh, t right now uh, that that trip called them to missions. We have the guy who got lost on the way to the bathroom is now a youth pastor. Uh, there are so many uh, who would say that I grew in my relationship with Jesus on that trip. 
More importantly, we've heard back from those organizations that we served to say the impact that your students had during that week changed the trajectory of our ministries and where uh, we're going. And we are incredibly grateful for all that they did. No matter how bad things may appear, they may seem, we always have to remember that God's in control. He's working out a beautiful plan in everything according to His will. It's our perspective that just needs to change. We have to stop focusing so much on the disaster, the storm, and what we need to focus on is that there is a God who is at peace in the middle of all of it. And we can trust in Him. Matthew 8, uh, verses 23 to 27 today uh, is for many a familiar story, a true story of Jesus and His relationship with the disciples and a lesson that was learned. If you can, if you are willing, let's stand together. Let me read this for us. It says, when he got into the boat, that's Jesus, the disciples followed him. And behold, there arose a great storm on the sea, so that the boat was being swamped by the waves. But he was asleep. And they went and woke him, saying, Save us, Lord, we're perishing. And he said to them, Why are you afraid, O you of little faith? Then he rose and rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was a great calm. And the men marveled, saying, What sort of man is this, that even the winds and the sea obey him? Father, uh, this is your word. Your word speaks truth. We just pray right now that you would, would just speak through your word what it is that you want us to know about who you are and about our lives, how they go together. Bless this time. Amen. You can have a seat. The first thing that, that we find in this situation is that it seems like chaos, but it's, it's all under control. Uh, Jesus is not phased by this at all. And I love how this begins. Jesus, it says that Jesus got into the boat and the disciples followed him. Now, what we need to understand is what has already taken place. Remember, Jesus had preached this sermon on the mount. The crowd started to grow, hundreds of people, if not thousands. He goes to Capernaum where he heals a man of leprosy and then he uh, heals a centurion servant just by speaking it. He doesn't even go to his house. And then he heals Peter's mother-in-law and then a crowd really starts to grow. They start bringing all of the sick from around the area. It says he drives out the, the, the demons out of people that were being oppressed and the crowd continued to grow in number. And Jesus said, we talked about this last week, He says, you guys go get the boat ready. In other words, He says, I, I, we, this isn't, I'm, I'm a healer, yes, but that's not my, my, my first mission. My mission is to, to make people aware about who I am, who, the kingdom of God. And so He says, go get the boats ready. We're going to we're gonna sail to the other side. And, and it tells us that by now it was evening evening meant that the sun was going down. And it meant that the waters out on the Sea of Galilee were really not going to be that visible. It was going to be dark out. Now, the Sea of Galilee is pretty small, actually. It's 8 miles wide. It's 13 miles 
long, and it's about 600 feet below sea level, and so it's like this, it's in a deep, deep valley. So when the winds come and rush down those, those mountainsides, they almost like lift the waters. And so even to this day, there are stories that are told about the, the incredible waves that just rise up on the Sea of Galilee. And boats in those days were not that large. It could maybe hold about 15 uh, adults. And Jesus, though, it's getting to be evening, it's getting to be late, and he says, let's go sail to the other side, and it says that the disciples followed him. Because they're seasoned sailors. They're fishermen. We can handle this. Not a problem. Maybe not the smartest for us to go out in the middle of the night, but it's nighttime, but we'll go because our teacher is going and we're willing to follow him. And go back to what we talked about last week. Jesus had just got, uh, got done uh, addressing two men who were like, I'll follow you, Jesus. But, right, Jesus had said, I, I'm a, I don't have a home. I'm not going to provide comfort for you. We don't know what the decision was, was that that man made, but we assume that he was like, well, then I'm out. And then another, well, I'll follow you, but just let me go back home and take care of some details. And Jesus says, I'm calling you to follow me now. So then he says, so let's go get in the boat. The disciples are like, we're in, right? We're not, we're not going to question. We're not going to go take care of any details. If he's going, I don't care if it's nighttime and out on the water, uh, we're going to go. We got this. Let's sail to the other side. It was assumed maybe just a couple hours is all it would take to sail to where they were uh, desiring to go, and all of a sudden, a storm rises up. Um, begins to ravage the points as being swamped by the waves. Mark and Luke also tell uh, this from their perspective, uh, and they say that there were other boats along with it, and the waves were so high they couldn't see each other. Sailing along with it, but they couldn't even see each other. And swamp means can't see, and the waves are crashing into the boat. They're filling it up with water. So you can imagine them trying to bail the water out. Uh, and they think that this thing, the boats are going to tip over, that they are going to lose this battle. Obviously, it was nothing like they had probably seen before. They start to panic. Men who grew up on those waters, men who owned those boats, men who were experts in sailing, now have become uh, just out of control panic. We've lost control of this. We're going to die. And in the middle of the chaos and them bailing out all the water and rain uh, coming down and waves crashing over them and they're all soaking wet and they're all screaming, they look for Jesus and He is asleep in the back of the boat. These are not cruise ships where He's in His room. He's laying down uh, on a cushion in the back row of that boat, getting pelted by the same waves, uh, getting blown by the same wind, hearing the screams, the terrifying screams of all of these men, and Jesus is asleep. While everybody else is out of control, He's in complete control. He's at peace. See, what we need to understand, first of all, about this story is, is that we do put focus on the power of the storm, but, but actually this is recorded in Scripture for us to understand the power of God. He's in control of all of it. This is a teachable moment. 
that God is at work. Jesus brings them out onto the lake to teach them a lesson about faith. They start freaking out. We're, we're flooded. We're dying. They're focused on the problem, the situation. We're going to die. We can't do this. It's cold. We can't see each other. The waves are crashing over. You're asleep. Their focus is on, on the problem, not on the solution. What we need to understand, because we're, we're guilty of it as well. Oh, how we give a whole lot of lip service and time and focus of our hearts and our minds and our lives and our conversations and our fear on the problems that are around us. Rather than going to the one who is fully aware of the problem and he's fully at peace in the middle of it. Isaiah 26.3 says, You keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you. How can Jesus sleep in a moment like this? Because he's at peace. Because he's always focused on the Father and the Father's will and he knows that God is always doing something great. So let the waves crash. Let the boat rock. Let the boat flood. Let's all, we, let's all go overboard. Maybe we will all even perish. I'll still be at peace. Because God's in control. Not just of the situation, but of my life. I've given it to Him. I'm willing to do whatever it is. And if he decides that tonight's the night that my boat tips over, then I will be at peace. A true disciple really should be following their, the example of their teacher. right? That, that's really kind of a picture that we're supposed to understand from this. While the teacher that you would desire to follow, to model your life after, is asleep at night in a boat, even though there's a storm, that's where they should have been as well. But instead, they're too focused on their own lives, on the struggles around them, and mostly on the fear of the unknown about what's going to happen. In the middle of our storms, the first thing that we should ask is, how can I model Jesus in the middle of all of this? How can I have a peace in Christ and in the Father in the middle of all this, to give me sound mind to be able to do what it is that I'm supposed to do to continue to be a follower of Jesus in the middle of all of this. Jesus wakes up. I love how He always responds to the disciples. He's a good rabbi. Rabbi, Rabbis to teach usually uh, teach by asking a question. And so he kind of comes out of his, his sleep, you know, and, and he, he says, why are you so afraid? Duh! <laughs> right? I mean, you'd think that they don't even have time to answer that. But he wakes up and they're screaming and the waves are crashing and he probably wakes up and he's soaking wet. And, and Mark actually says he's still sitting. So he kind of, you know, sits over up onto the bench and he's like, maybe rubs his eyes. What seems to be the problem? Like, we're dying! Right? We, that's what the, the disciples say in, in Mark's narrative. He says, we are perishing! And you're not doing anything about this. 
And Jesus says, why are you so afraid, O you of, of little faith? It was actually, O you of little faith is a, a word that, that Jesus used only a few times in the Gospels to address people. And, and if you look it up, it's actually a nickname. That's, it's actually kind of this a term of endearment with a challenge. Uh, little faithless ones. It's kind of, uh, so he's addressing them kind of just as to, to almost calm them. Why are you so afraid? Why do you have such little faith? Interesting thing about, about Jesus' statement is that it, it should take the disciples and us as the readers back to the middle of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount to chapter 6. Remember when Jesus says, he was at the time not addressing anybody in particular, he was addressing the crowd to say, don't be anxious about anything. Don't be fearful about where your life is headed, especially in the tiny details. Remember, he says, don't worry about what you'll eat or what you'll drink or what you will wear. Don't you know that, that you are so valuable to God that he provides for you anything that you could possibly need? So in the sermon, it was, I'm just giving you a blanket statement that none of you should be anxious about anything. Don't worry about even the smallest detail. Now you fast forward to out in the middle where they think they're actually going to die. And he says the same thing. He says, don't be anxious about anything. Why do you care so much about the little things in life? Oh, you of little faith. Now he comes back and he says, even in the middle of the storm, what's the problem? Oh, you of little faith. It's supposed to launch the disciples and us back to, do you not know that God knows what you need? He cares about you. That's how I can sleep in the back of the boat because I know that God's got this. He's in complete control. Jesus is addressing their fear. They cried out, save us, Lord. Even though at the time that word Lord that they were using, they, we know from reading the Gospels, they didn't fully comprehend Jesus as Lord until after His death and resurrection so they definitely didn't understand it now when they're in the middle of the storm. What they're really saying is, leader, teacher, why aren't you helping us? Why aren't you here? Hell, we've seen you heal people. We know that you can do big things. Is there anything that you can do? Can you make all of this water disappear out of the boat? What is it that you could do that you could help out to spare us? But Jesus says, why are you so afraid? In other words, he says, why do, you, why do you call me, Lord? Why do you call upon the one who actually has the power to save, but you don't have the faith that I can do it? Psalm 46.10 says, Be still and know that, that I am God. Mark tells us that in the middle of the panic, that the things that they were screaming were... Do you not even know that we're perishing? Do, do, you not even, do you not even care? You're just sleeping. What are you doing? Where are you? How many of us are guilty of that? That in the middle of the tough times in life, that's our first response. Is our thought toward God is, do you even care? Do you even know that I'm here? Am I of any value to you whatsoever? Do you even exist? Why are you doing this to me? Though that's, that's what we start to throw at God in the middle of the storms when our cry should be, 
Lord, save me. I trust in you. I know that you can do this. Fear is not a bad thing, I think, because fear awakens our faith. It shows us that we're helpless, that we need a rescue. Fear is dangerous when it overpowers our faith. When it elevates the problem higher than the truth of what we know about who God is and His Word. That's what Jesus is addressing. Psalm 46.10 says, Be still and know that I am God. And we always think, well, it's, is it that easy? No, it's not that easy. So you've got to look at the context of what Psalm 46 actually says. It says that there will come times when the mountains will shake and they will fall into the sea. There will be times when the waters will rage and they will roar and the foam will rise up. A good young Jewish disciple would know that passage. There will be times when it will seem like everything in this world is out of control. But Psalm 46 says, But God is our refuge and ever-present help in times of trouble. Therefore, we will not fear when the earth gives way, when the mountains tremble and fall into the sea, and when the waters rage and foam, because God is present, the writer says. He lifts His voice, and the earth melts. In other words, He speaks and the storms calm. He's with us. He is our fortress. And then He says, so be still and know that I am God. Be still and know that I am God. That, that when I speak, I have the power to calm even the greatest of disasters. That's the beauty in all of it. That he has the power to do it. And when Jesus says, oh, you of little faith, why are you so afraid? I love that, that he addresses the disciples and, and teaches a lesson before he calms the sea. Right? Hey, you know, Jesus, now is not the time. Right? We get it. When, when all is said and done, we get back to the shore and we get dried off, then let's sit around the campfire, let's sing some worship songs, and then you help apply this to our lives. That's not what Jesus does. In the middle of the storm, He teaches the lesson. How can we apply that to our lives today? Rather than get me out of this, we say, you know what, God, thank you. Can you show me more of who you are in the middle of this? Show me my weaknesses in the middle of this. Show me my needs in the middle of this. Show me my level of faith in the middle of this. God, speak. So Jesus addresses their issue, and then He addresses their issue. And he speaks and He rebukes the winds. He says, peace be still. It's really the same word twice. Some scholars say one, the, peace, the first peace is for the disciples. Like, shh, I'm working here. And then to the waves, shh, I'm working here. And all is calm. Peace be still. A great calm comes over the water and Jesus shows absolute authority over creation. He's already done it over man and over illnesses. He's just expanding, showing them, revealing to them expansion of His reign and His rule and His authority. It's not just over diseases. It's this progression. A great preacher, great words, authority. He spoke with such authority, they said. 
Who is this man that he speaks with such authority? And then who is this man that he can heal diseases? And now, who is this man that he can even calm the waters with the with this words of his voice? He is God, the one who speaks, and all becomes still. They're in awe. Who is it that even the wind and the seas obey? The focus of this story is on Jesus. Who is he with an authority like this? One with a power like this can only be God. The Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians 12 talks about the struggle that he has. It's a health thing. We're not sure what it is. He calls it a thorn in his flesh. He said, I beg God to take it away. Over and over and over again, I beg God that it would just leave and it would go away. And God's response to Paul was, my grace is enough. That's all you need. My grace is sufficient for you because my power is made perfect in your weakness. And so Paul says, so I will boast evermore in my weaknesses. Because it's through that that God is doing something great. We can kick and scream and freak out beg to get out of the storms of life, or we can look to the one who's in control in the middle of it, and he's saying, I want to teach you something in this. And we just say, uh, then teach on. Because I know that you have the power to do whatever it is that you desire to do in my life, and I would rather have you in charge than me. I'll just be still, and I'll let you work. The response of these disciples... Who is this man? If we were to now fast forward to the end of the book of Matthew, Jesus goes through what we look at as an absolute disaster, a struggle that he goes through of innocently he's taken, arrested, beaten, hung on a cross, killed, his blood poured out, his life given up for our, our sins. He didn't need to do it. He did it out of love and a care for us because of God's mercy that He wanted to have for us. And all of that takes place. And the one who oversaw Jesus being hung on the cross answers the question of who is this man? He says, surely this man is the Christ. Who else would go through something like this? Who else could endure? Who else would have peace in the middle of a disaster? Who else could make all things beautiful? Surely Jesus is the Christ. He's our Lord. Let's live it out. Believe it with our lives, even in the middle of the storms. Let's pray. Father, we are told by you in Ecclesiastes that you make the choice to do all things. That everything is beautiful in your time. When times are tough, they seem like a disaster, they're beautiful because you're in control. It's just you at work. Give us a proper perspective of what you're up to in the world and give us the faith that we need to trust that you are doing greater things than we could ever fathom. 
Move us, Father, from fear of death to embracing the life that You've given to us so that we can run hard after You to go on these adventures that You have for us. That wherever it is that You're going to go, You're going to teach us something and You're going to use us. You're going to mold us and shape us into Your image. You've got a plan and we trust it. Help us to be still and know that You're God. Amen. Amen. We're going to move to a time now where we celebrate the Lord's Supper, remembering His life that He gave for us. Singing about those two questions, uh, the question, I should say, and the answer, the question, who is this man? The answer, surely this is the Son of God. Both of these come to play when we celebrate the table because when they said, who is this man? They're talking about the man, uh, God, who took on flesh. And he actually did take on actual flesh. He became human and lived a sinless life. This is incredibly important because that's the only way that he could stand as a substitute for other humans. And because he was sinless, didn't have any sin of his own, he could step in our place, die on the cross with our sins so we didn't have to. This pays our debt. But we need more than just forgiveness to be with God, to, be, to receive salvation. Because if you have a debt and someone says, I forgive your debt, how much money do you have? Zero. To be with God, your account doesn't need to be at zero. It needs to be full. When he shed his blood, which is his life, he gave us his life, his righteousness. 1 Corinthians 5 says, we give him our sin, he takes it and gives us his righteousness. He fills our account. So his death forgives our sin. His resurrection fills our account with his righteousness. And so we remember, that's what he told us to remember, my body broken for you, my sinless body, where I stand in your place so you don't pay the punishment for your sin, Jesus said, I'll pay it. And the blood, his life poured out, where he says, you don't have to figure out a way to be holy because you can't. The holiness comes from me, the righteousness comes from me, my life given for you. He says, this is the new covenant in my blood. It's sealed with my blood. So this morning is one more chance. If you're a believer, if you've trusted in Christ and received that salvation, you rejoice and you say, thank you for your body. Thank you for standing in my place as a substitute. Thank you for giving your blood, shedding your blood so that I could have life. And maybe you haven't done that yet. This is the gospel. What you're saying yes to in Jesus is Yes, what he taught, what he showed us, how he lived, but it's his body broken for you, his blood shed for you. And your response is to say, yes. I receive the forgiveness that you offer. I receive the righteousness that you offer so that I can be with you now and forever. That's the truth and the hope of the gospel. We're going to partake of this. Now, we're not going to take it all together at the same time. You have the bread and the cup, and we're going to, Take a little time during the first part of this song. And whenever you are ready, whenever you have a moment to yourself, just to say thank you for your body, thank you for your blood, you can take, take on your own, just as a moment. And then at the end, we'll join together and sing about the cross where he poured out his life for us and gave it for us. So take a moment, whenever you're ready, take the bread, take the cup, pause, and say thank you, Jesus. I receive and remember what you've done for me.
Okay. 
So whatever situation that you might find yourself in, whether it's today, in days to come, maybe you've lived through it, uh, start to see it from a different perspective. It's a beautiful thing because God's in the midst of it. He's at peace and he's at work. He's calling you to himself. He's proven it uh, through his son Jesus and what he's done for us, that he loves us, cares about us, desires a relationship, wants us to trust him. As you go from here today, he wants us to, to pour that love out onto others in a tangible way. And so we have a benevolent offering that we take every month that helps to go toward those that have great needs. And so there are envelopes down in uh, front of you in the pews. If you would love to give an offering toward the benevolent offering, that's a separate offering than our regular tithes and offerings, which we're grateful that we're faithful in giving to that. But this is to help those that are within our church body that have a great need. And just to let you know, one of, one of the ways uh, that we continue to love on the Gallaghers is that um, it's really uh, kind of, it's weird with, with nonprofits and, and employees of nonprofits that people have asked, can we give to the church and then you give that money to Pastor Dave and we can't do that. And, and so uh, what you can do, what we have done is our elders at the church, as our spiritual leaders have said, we We'll take care of the Gallaghers. So, so we as a church just take care of those that have needs in the benevolent offering and out of that our leadership will determine where it needs to go. But if you would love to give to the Gallaghers in that way, you can all just give through the benevolent offering and, and everyone's needs will be taken care of. So give generously to that and then as you go, live generously with the people that are around you. Thanks for all that you do to be for the city, to love others, and to love Jesus. Go in His peace. Blessings. Have a great day.